Gemar Chatimatova. One of the most tragic characters in all of Jewish literature is a rabbi named Elisha Benabuya, though the Jewish tradition does not see it that way. In fact, according to our ancient rabbis, Elisha is the ultimate villain. And like any good villain, he has an origin story. As the story goes, one day Elisha is walking down the street and he hears a father ask his son to go to the top of the tree and gather eggs for him. And as the boy begins to head toward the tree, the father reminds him to shoo away the mother bird so she won't have the anguish of seeing her young taken. Now, according to Jewish tradition, this boy deserves merit for his actions. Of the 613 commandments in the Torah, there are only two commandments which reward you for a long life for following them. One is honoring your parents, and the other is shooing away a mother bird when collecting her eggs. So by all accounts, this boy had done both. He must have great things coming to him. That's why when the boy tragically slips and falls off the ladder, dying in the process, Alicia cannot contain himself. He looks at the shocked father and he exclaims, there is no judge and there is no justice. Or to put it another way, God is dead and there is no order in the world. Quickly, Elisha Benabuya becomes a pariah. In his world, no one can question God, let alone deny God's existence. He was immediately cast out of the community. In fact, the rabbinic leadership decried that henceforth, no one could even utter his name. He would forever be known as Acher, the first Voldemort, the first he who shall not be named. The reason that I call Elisha's life a tragedy is that the same religion that has ideas throughout the high holy days of forgiveness and that no one is beyond reproach and that everyone has a pathway toward reconciliation, that same tradition casts him out. Elisha is not embraced in his questioning. He is not brought back in the fold. He is ostracized and he is alienated. And to employ an anachronism, he is canceled. Now, whether you know the term canceling or not, you've probably seen it today in our discourse. It is the attempt to erase a person, often a public figure, from society. You might stop buying a person's books because of something that they said in an interview or delete their music because of a tweet that you find offensive. And you might advocate that others that you know do the same. In fact, canceling has become such a central part of our society that Merriam-Webster added it as a definition, a valid definition, to the verb to cancel in 2019. It is no longer just slang. Today, the term cancel culture has become politicized, and it is often used as a sort of cudgel by public figures to deflect against repercussions when they are called out for their words and actions. But the sentiment behind the term stands. Today, we are quick to punish those who offend us without a pathway back toward our good graces. 
Earlier this year, Harper's Magazine published an open letter by some of the world's top academics and writers entitled, quote, A Letter on Justice and Open Debate, where they condemned the troubling trend of, quote, swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. They continue by citing the many instances where this takes place. They write, editors are fired for running controversial pieces. Books are withdrawn for alleged inauthenticity. Journalists are barred from writing on certain topics. Professors are investigating for quoted works of literature in class. A researcher is fired for circulating a peer-reviewed academic study. And the head of an organization is ousted for what? one sometimes calls clumsy mistakes. The publisher of the letter was, mixed, was met with mixed responses. Many people lauded the commitment of these writers to open dialogue and free speech. Judaism has always supported open debate. We should be in conversation with those that we disagree. After all, we are told in our Talmud that when two scholars debate, they are like two flints who strike one against the other, both growing sharper in the process. However, there were others who condemned this letter. As they explain, we only have a limited number of tools at our disposal to affect change. And if someone gets their cultural currency by, paying a, by being paid attention to, then sometimes the only way to get them to listen is to place our attention elsewhere, thus ignoring them. In fact, canceling is and always has been at the heart of the way that marginalized communities have sought progress. In fact, some scholars draw straight lines between today's cancel culture and that of the civil rights movement. As Anne Charity Hudley, the chair of linguistics of African America for the University of California, Santa Barbara has said, quote, Canceling is a survival skill as old as the Southern black use of the boycott. Continuing in an interview with Vox, Hudley explains, quote, canceling is a way to acknowledge that you don't have the power to change structural inequality. You don't even have the power to change all of public sentiment. But as an individual, you still have power beyond measure. Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim, says our Talmud. Both opinions are the words of the ever-living God. Indeed, both the authors of the Harper's letter and Professor Hudley are correct. Our current moment necessitates that we use every apparatus possible to advocate for a better world, and yet at the same time, we live in a toxic culture that does not always distinguish between hate speech and honest dialogue between fair and unfair critique, between a position in need of education and one in need of eradication. And because of that, because people are so vitriolic online and because the apparatus for punishing even minor infractions is so harsh, many are afraid to voice their opinion, if controversial at all. Case in point, in April 2019, the New York Times published in its international edition a horribly anti-Semitic cartoon of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, depicted as a dog with a Jewish collar being walked by a kippah wearing Donald Trump. The blowback against the New York Times was swift and it was warranted. 
Although it was later discovered that this mistake was won by a rogue editor and caused by insufficient checks on the, contact, on the content of their international editions, the Times had tasted the wrath of the masses. Apologies were not enough, and attacks continued well after the crisis had been addressed. And then two months later, the New York Times announced that they would no longer run cartoons, either in the international or the domestic papers, knowing that they were likely to cross boundaries when dealing with things like politics and humor. They decided it would just be safer to avoid any controversy and stay away from the attention of Twitter's mobs and trolls. Lamenting this decision, PEN America, who advocates for free speech, writes, free speech and open discourse demands an understanding that mistakes and offenses will occur and a determination that those not be answered by shutting down expressions to avert future lapses. In an age of fast-evolving social mores and heightened awareness of offenses, political cartooning has become a risky business. But if outlets like the New York Times retreat from this unique, potent form of political commentary, it may hasten the death of a form that has contrib contributed immensely to our political conversation over time. End quote. I'm sure by now you're asking yourself why I'm preaching a sermon about cancel culture on the High Holy Days. The answer is simple. At the core of how we respond to others when they offend and hurt or alienate is the dual notions of teshuvah, their repentance, and our forgiveness, both of which are crucial themes of this time of year. As I mentioned before, it is okay to turn up the heat from time to time, to call out, to castigate, even to cancel. What makes cancel culture problematic is not that it happens, but that we as a society do not provide an avenue for someone to return from it, to become uncanceled, to climb back into our good graces. And to learn how to do this, we need look no further than our sacred Jewish sources. For centuries, Jews have wrestled with notions of forgiveness. There is little question that our tradition speaks unequivocally about the need to forgive. In fact, so important is forgiveness that our rabbis teach, quote, one who overcomes their natural tendencies to hold a grudge and instead forgives, they find that all of their sins are forgiven. However, not everyone who asks is deserving of forgiveness. Writing about the importance of forgiveness, Maimonides lays out steps that one must take before one can reasonably assume that they can be let back in. He writes, the offending person is prohibited from being cruel in not offering forgiveness, for this is not the way of the seed of Israel. Rather, if the offender has resolved all material claims and has asked and begged for forgiveness once, even twice, if the offended person knows that the other has done repentance for sins and feels remorse for what was done, then the offended person should offer the sinner forgiveness. Take a moment to notice what Maimonides had said. Forgiveness is an imperative, but only after a person is truly contrite. 
They may have to pay back money. They may have to try multiple times. They must prove that they have changed. But at that point, it is cruel not to let them back in. We move from the victim to the victimizer when we, do not, when we deny a person a pathway to redemption. Today, it's not always easy to know if a person has authentically changed. We live in an era of the canned apology. Often the news cycle moves so quickly that a person can wait it out, assuming that people will forget about their missteps. Often others will employ PR teams to remedy their tarnished image rather than face the hard work of actually earning their community's trust back. But most of all, we need and we must find ways to forgive others if they are willing to take steps to do that. In her book, Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All, Suzanne Nossel, CEO of PEN America, outlined a number of factors that we should consider when deciding when to bring someone back to the fold. She first asks, are you persuaded by their contrition? I think most of us can sniff out an insincere apology when it happens. They include lines like, I'm sorry you feel that way, or I'm sorry if I offended you. It shirks ownership, and their apology turns the onus back on us, the offended. But if they are giving us a truly sincere apology, we should be able to listen with a full heart. We should see the person open and ready to face their mistake, and we should be willing to learn what comes next. Next, we have to ask if the offending behavior is a departure from a person's character or indicative of it. She asks, should a professor who has no history of racism and who accidentally insults a person of color be treated the same as someone with a proven record of bigotry? Should a single offensive slip by a television anchor mean that that person goes off the air permanently? No one is beyond forgiveness, but a person with ingrained beliefs or behaviors deserves a longer road to redemption than one who simply makes a mistake. Unfortunately, our current climate does not usually make this distinction. Finally, she asks us to look at what that person has done to earn absolution. Have they simply apologized and expected society to move on? Or have they worked at it, proactively seeking to right their wrong? To illustrate this point, Nossel points to comedian Tracy Morgan, who was called out for a homophobic riff on stage. Not only did Morgan issue an apology, but he met with representatives of LGBTQ organizations. He recorded an anti-bullying ad, and he spearheaded an episode on his regular television show, 30 Rock, that fictionalized his transgression and made fun of his apology. Today, because of his hard work, Morgan is well on his way to rehabilitating his image. I know that these steps aren't going to work for everyone. There are countless examples in the Jewish tradition where we just can't find absolution. The sins of someone is too great. Their obstinacy was too much of an obstacle to change. I'm sure you agree that someone like Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby could work for the rest of their lives and not get back to where they were before their deeds were, mis were discovered. In their case, 
the finitude of time will ensure that they remain perpetually canceled. But for every Cosby or Weinstein, there's someone else waiting for an open door, excited to walk through it for forgiveness if society would only let them in. We cannot wash our hands of anyone. Last night, each of us heard a prayer uttered before the cantor sang Kol Nidre, inviting a group known as the Avaryanim to pray with us. The text of the prayer goes by the authority of the heavenly court and of the earthly court with the consent of God and this congregation. We give permission to play, pray with Avaryanim, with sinners in our midst. So who are these sinners that the prayer speaks about? Scholars think that they are those who are facing excommunication. They are like Alicia Benabuya. Society has canceled them. And for one night, they are all invited to return. Every single one of them is permitted into the synagogue to sit among friends, pray beside family, to feel the community that has turned them away. One has to imagine the power of this moment. For one night, everyone is back in. And sitting next to their neighbors, suddenly the humanity of the outcast is on full display. How much that must have galvanized those in attendance to seek reconciliation and to move toward forgiveness. Today, we don't have this practice. In fact, most of us never see the people that we call out. We hit send on an email, we cancel a subscription, we sign a petition, and we are done with them for life. They are acher, some unnamed other to which we give no second thought. But there is wisdom in our ancestors' Yom Kippur practices. And today I want to challenge you to think about who you want to bring back in. Who are you ready to engage with? Who are you ready to forgive? There is power in remaining part of the conversation. Each of us has a choice to preach from the outside or to teach from within. Ostracizing may offer a catalyst for change, but it won't cement it. People will not grow if they feel attacked by you. But I promise you, they will listen to you forever if you speak to them with love. Gamar Chatima Tova, may you have an easy rest of your fast.